Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This is where you get to listen to a curated collection of the editor's top picks of our recent articles. For when you need to be eyes-free or hands-free, but still want to discover the seen and unseen. The Unutterable Preciousness of an Ordinary Day by Julie Canlis One of the strangest and longest seasons in the church calendar is called Ordinary Time. Feels caught like a fish out of water between the high pageantry of Easter and the thrill of Christmas. Ordinary Time, when school is out and warm summer days are glorious, is there some mistake? Any kid with a high love of summer would know that the church had yet again missed the whole point. You'd be forgiven for thinking that ordinary time, despite its obvious insinuations for Anglophiles, meaning boring or even not important. It is not, after all, when the church gets a well-earned break from the supernatural and things can be normal for a while. Nor is it when Jesus goes on vacation alongside the rest of us, Despite the terminological abomination that is ordinary time, says George Vigel, ordinary time is when the church leans into the fact that all of life is sacred. All of life has meaning. Why? For Christians, it is because God decided to become human in every ordinary way, to bless and remind us that life is not so ordinary after all. The fact that God decided to walk our history in our shoes means that God's life is available in all alleyways, everywhere, every minute. This means that every child whose knee has been scraped and has been comforted is in God's territory. Every joy of friendship and even rejection has been experienced by the God-man. Every pubescent crush is understood. Every badly crafted project in our dad's workshop or mum's flower bin has also been in Mary's kitchen or hanging on her wall. When Christians worship this God, they know that they worship someone who experienced everything that they are experiencing. Every joy, every terror and even the humdrum in between. Because of this... No day can be a time out from the supernatural. Every day is now holy. And this is the riot of ordinary time, which has no holy days, but is itself one long holy day holiday. And so, the church calendar is attempting to do precisely the opposite of carving up life into sacred and secular, a false division if there ever was one. The church calendar integrates all things into the life of God, who was also human, and so can testify to the goodness of jam and the horror of loneliness. This calendar, far from an attempt to lift people out of the ordinary life, was an attempt to root them in the one who makes all things extraordinary. It's no wonder that the chosen colour for this season is green, that of new life, vibrant in its small seed-like ways, growing imperceptibly but persistently. And this is why when Christians have been vigilantes against things that prioritise the supernatural over the natural, 
the church has flourished for all classes. Even the good old stodgy Reformation forefathers, with their frilly collars, championed ordinary life as God's sphere against those who held it as lower on spiritual scale. Or again, there were Victorian priests like M.F. Sadler, who intuited the dangers of church elitism and railed against mischievous theology cut off from ordinary life. Or what of George MacDonald, Scottish pastor and fantasy writer, who says that Jesus' miracles only seem like miracles because we take everyday life for granted. How many more have the marvel of vision than those blind whom the Lord has healed? He calls God the divine alchemist, turning every meal into a Eucharist, not just the bread and wine of the high altar. Ordinary time, in the church calendar, is the season of the sacred ordinary, or the ordinary extraordinary. Fifty days after Easter is Whitson, or Pentecost, when according to the history of the early church by Luke, the doctor, the Holy Spirit came upon all people, young, old, men, women, Greek, African, slaves. The spirit and love of Jesus was handed over to these ordinary people to continue what Jesus started. And that day, the church was born. And here we are, 2,000 years later, as the same ordinary church, invited to hallow something as ordinary as time itself. How differently would we live if we were able to recognise the unutterable preciousness of today? To be aware that we will never be given this particular day again. Today is the still point from which all the days since our birth have been stretching forward. And today is the point from which all days rush toward our end. Without knowing this and finding ways to honour it, can we be living at all? This is the invitation of ordinary time. Remembering Well, Journeying Through America's Memorials by Ian Hamlin Pilgrimage, according to Pete Grieg's definition at least, is simply a journey with God, in search of God. In other words, it's not going from somewhere God isn't to somewhere he is, but does recognise the real power of place, that the presence of God experienced in a specific location is significant and worthy of seeking out. I've been reluctant to call my sabbatical trip to the sites of a variety of events significant to the American journey towards civil rights in the 1950s and 60s a pilgrimage. It sounds overly grand, and to give too strong an emphasis to the geography, rather than either the history or the biography of Martin Luther King himself, the inspiration of the whole journey. Yet, as I've been travelling, by plane, train, car and foot, I've been powerfully moved as I've stood in places that have carried the weight of real pain and extreme significance. There is genuine emotion attached to being somewhere where something happened. Barely a generation ago, it leaves a legacy hanging in the air, which is somehow palpable. 
That's true regardless, but it's often helped, although sometimes hindered, by some sort of marker. Something to let you know that this is where it was. Beyond the purely informational, memorialising has, or can, play a potent part in demanding that attention be continually paid to the past's relevance to the here and now. Those responsible for keeping this particular story alive across the United States have, it seems to me, done an exceptional job in providing markers and memorials that both focus and amplify the meaning of the events that they commemorate. Allow me to take you with me briefly to some of the places where I have stood, that you might sense something of what I have felt. The USA, of course, has some experience of memorialising significant yet relatively recent events. Coming from the UK, where I'm used to public monuments largely celebrating victory, glorifying generals and affirming a pretty static sense of solid certainty, it's refreshing to witness commemorations that provoke as many questions as they provide answers, that promote reflection and challenge as well as inform. Washington DC is, of course, a city of memorials, Some of the most well-known are, strictly speaking, outside of the remit of my trip, but it seems wasteful not to visit nonetheless. The monuments to Lincoln, Jefferson and Washington himself are famously huge, grand and imposing. Yet, to my mind at least, the most moving presidential memorials are those for Roosevelt and Mason, the forgotten founder. Relatively small, humble even, thoughtful, the small wheelchair-bound figure of Roosevelt, almost lost within his own expansive legacy, generously populated with the images of others, especially the poor, they have put aside prestige for the sake of the personal. When it comes to war, there's a welcome note of ambiguity, whether you are scarred by the gash in the landscape that is the Vietnam Memorial, or haunted by the staring eyes of the unnamed soldiers of the Korean War, catching you accusingly with their glance. There's no place for mere glorification here. Of course, the one non-president remembered on the National Mall takes me to the heart of my journey. Martin Luther King stands tall and majestic, emerging literally out of the rock face behind him. Out of the mountain of despair, a stone of hope. Powerful in every respect, but I would have to go elsewhere to find his humanity. Like to his birth home in Atlanta, beside the very dining table, where he was told by his father that the reason the inseparable friend of his preschool years dropped him as soon as school began was because of the colour of his skin and that it would happen over and over again. Or later, at the kitchen table of the parsonage of his first church in Montgomery, where having cleared up the wreckage from his bombed porch, he wondered in the middle of the night if the burden he was carrying was too great to carry. And yet, right there, experienced an encounter with God that fueled his every succeeding day. 
maybe to Boston, the most recent abstract yet tender monument to the embrace between him and his wife, a marriage far from perfect, yet powerfully enabling. Or perhaps standing in his very footsteps, marked for posterity at the Lincoln Memorial for the March on Washington, the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, perhaps the most searingly evocative place of all that I visited, or behind his own beloved pulpit from Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, Montgomery. In each and every place, recalling all the different stories, you get a feel for the man, for his pain, and for his faith. Then there were the larger museums, interpretive centres and institutes designed to show the bigger picture still. Like the enormously impressive National African American Museum of Art and History, part of the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, where I joined in quick succession a weeping line of black American visitors filing past Emmett Till's open casket, then the same crowd cheering the recorded promise of a dream. The Civil Rights Museum of Birmingham, charged with the overseeing of the 16th Street Baptist Church and the place just outside the ladies' restroom, where a bomb exploded, killing four young girls just as the service was about to begin, as well as the pretty little park opposite, with its startling sculptures of snarling police dogs and water cannons. There was the Legacy Museum, from enslavement to mass incarceration in Montgomery, where you're immediately overwhelmed by storm force waves crashing all around the walls and the ceiling, enveloping you in the immersive experience of the transatlantic slave trade. Before peering into a tiny cell and seeing a holographic figure come to life before you, a slave waiting their auction, telling you their story. Then, much more up-to-date, being ushered into a prison visiting room, picking up the telephone to hear the convict's take on contemporary racial injustice. Or just down the road, in the Rosa Parks Museum, standing at a bus stop, watching a small, tired lady being hauled off to be arrested for failing to give up her seat, before you move on another half a mile or so to the National Memorial for Peace and Justice and feel the weight of the multitude of great steel blocks, 800 of them, each representing a county in America bearing the names of the victims of summary lynching. Finally, there's the gentle water flowing over Maya Lin's follow-up piece to her Vietnam Memorial the Civil Rights Memorial, also in Montgomery. All of these places and others, bitter with anger, drenched in tears, seared with hope, remembered, celebrated, with all their ongoing awkwardness as benchmarks in history and faith. In an age when the role of statues and memorials is much debated, when history, it said, should know its place, and yet be allowed to stand and speak its truth. These places, images, powerful exhibits and presentations demand that the whole painful truth shout out its reality, 
often in the name of the victims and the vanquished. In doing so, they bear good witness to the events that they've been designed to speak of. They inform, but much more than that, they move and they challenge. They create new and ongoing stories so that history is not only recalled, but re-enabled in a needy present and offered up in hope. How Much Is a Human Life Worth? by Ryan Gilfeather The horrors of recent weeks have brought a disturbing reality to the surface. Human dignity, the unearned and basic worth of all people, is up for negotiation. As I write these words, a dire conflict rumbles on in Israel and Gaza, the latest horrifying flashpoint in an intractable and brutal conflict. A cacophony of voices in the West are espousing histories, interpretations and solutions. Many of them reveal an implicit sense that only certain lives have an inherent dignity. Some praised Hamas's brutal attack as a just act of decolonialisation. The lives lost were not to be mourned because, in their words, these Israelis were fair game for violence because they were colonisers. They asked for it. They'd given up their right to the preservation of life. Implicitly, these voices suggest that human dignity is conditional. Their actions have taken away their inherent value. Just as troubling is the apathy as thousands of Palestinian men, women and children in Gaza are slain in their homes. Many of our leaders are silent about this unimaginable loss of life, as if it does not represent a tragedy, as if they are just the collateral damage of war. The implicit message is that human dignity has preconditions – that only certain kinds of people get to have it in the first place, and that these particular Palestinians do not. It is in some ways unsurprising that human dignity is up for negotiation in this way. Circular discussions of human dignity often ground it in the human person. In the philosophical tradition, following Kant, many consider our inherent dignity to be grounded in our capacity to make choices – autonomous and exercise reason. In other words, the capabilities which separate us from animals give us all an unearned worth or status. Others will point to our sentience, our capacity for creativity, empathy and caring relationships, or our membership of the human species. Hence, our inherent dignity is grounded in something that we do or possess over and above the rest of creation. The problem with this grounding is that it can, at times, seem arbitrary. Why should our rational autonomy or other capacities mean that we have an unearned worth? It is little surprise that dignity is so often overlooked in practice. In contrast, Christians root the dignity of every human person in something altogether outside of them the unbreakable love of God. 
It is a cornerstone of Christian belief that God loves every person who has ever lived and will ever live, regardless of what we have done or will do. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, as St Paul puts it. God's love for us is so profound that he became human and died for our sins so that we might be reconciled to him. Central also is the belief that God is omniscient. He knows everything that can ever be known, and he does not make errors of judgment. For him to love us without any conditions of who we are or what we do is to affirm that we are all inherently worthy of love. Our inherent dignity is therefore grounded in something far more fundamental than something we do. It is rooted in the love of the creator of the whole universe. If we believe in the Christian God, therefore, we also accept the supreme value of every person. God's gift to all of us expands on this picture. Genesis, the first book of the Bible, tells us that God made all humans in his image. In this, God gives us the gift of reflecting his goodness and love here on this earth. He has granted us the capacity to use our minds to think about God and abstract things, to live lives marked by his love, joy, peace, justice and courage. He calls us to use these capacities to nurture and care for creation just as he does. Since God is infinitely valuable, those made in his image are too. Hence, this gift gives us an inherent dignity. To respect this dignity, we must allow each person to live out this gift. Each person must be allowed to be free to think and act without having their life violated or cut short. Crucially, this gift is unconditional. No matter what we do, we can always turn back to God and accept his gift of reflecting his goodness. There are no preconditions for who God gives it to. He freely offers this gift to all. Returning to Western responses to Israel-Gaza, we see that the Christian vision of human dignity does not countenance celebration of or apathy toward this loss of life. Some people saw Israeli deaths as unworthy of grief because they believe their actions forfeit their right to life. They implicitly see human dignity as conditional. In contrast, Christians believe our inherent value is unconditional. God will never cease to love us and will never take away our ability to reflect his goodness. Indeed, the death of Palestinians has been met with apathy and silence by many in the West, much as human tragedies in the Middle East often are. Implicit to this response is the sense that human dignity has preconditions. It is only extended to certain groups, those who live similar lives to us. The Christian vision objects here. God's gift has no preconditions. It is freely offered to all. All possess an inherent dignity. This is not 
to prejudge the complex questions of how to deal with the heart of the Israel-Palestine conflict, but it is to say that as we do so, the value and dignity of every human life must be paramount in the decisions taken. In the midst of this darkness, the Christian message offers hope. Every death is a tragic loss beyond all imagination and measure, because all are infinitely valuable in God's sight. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, help others to discover it. Leave a review and rate us wherever you get seen and unseen allowed. Help others discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than they might ever have imagined.